Hello, and welcome to another episode of Daily American Presses Chatting with Abby. I am recording for my morning commute. It is 6.30 on a Monday morning for me. This episode will be coming out tonight, and uh, thank you for listening. Today I want to talk about a book I read and kind of the current state of publishing as I see it, particularly publishing for young adults which is a huge corner of the publishing industry. The YA section of publishing is huge because teenagers have oftentimes more time to read than adults. So there's a large volume that's published for young adults. And there's a whole community of people on YouTube and social media who kind of market the books to each other, talk about the books to each other. So it's a whole industry, just the YA corner of publishing. Now, because I was homeschooled and pretty sheltered, I didn't read in high school the books that were popular while I was in high school. I read predominantly classics and older books when I was in high school, which was great. It was great for my education. But then after college, I I wanted to see what I'd missed. And so I went back and I picked up a lot of the really, really popular series that had been at least begun, the series had been begun while I was in high school, I read things like Harry Potter, and I read Twilight, and I read just a lot of the really, really massively popular ones to see what part of culture I had missed, because these are things, you know, hate on Twilight all you want, but it has shaped culture as much literature does. Literature doesn't have to be great by your definition to have a large impact. And I think any literature that had a large impact is worth studying, whether or not it meets some arbitrary standard of excellence. I could talk a lot about Twilight in particular, but I won't, probably. Anyway, that's something I really enjoyed. And so when I got into reading those books of the moment and discovered they were very enjoyable to read and there was a lot of good, true and beautiful stuff in them, a lot of good stories. Classics are, classics can be really, really cool because they have stood the test of time. And because they've stood the test of time, oftentimes they speak on something universal that can be applied in anywhere and any time. But that doesn't mean that something that's written today couldn't also at least apply to this time, if not more universally, and be valuable, just as valuable um, as a discussion piece. I, I kind of reject the idea that something Dickens wrote in the Victorian era is just objectively more valuable than Twilight. If you think about it, just the impact that Twilight had, just the way that it gripped the imagination of a whole generation, not just of teenage girls, but boys as well. Um, classic literature, it, it doesn't have to be this I think we have a really mistaken idea of what it is that makes classics classics. And then people get all intellectual and high-minded about how they only read classics. And they would never stoop to the level of reading some trash like Twilight. And it's like, no, this Twilight gripped a generation for a reason. And then if you want to be a student 
knowledge of literature, you find what gripped any given generation and ask why and what impact it had. Can you tell that I studied literature in school? Anyway, I'm gonna, I told you I wasn't gonna stop talk about Twilight and then I talked about Twilight. Anyway, that's not what I wanted to talk about today. <laughs> so I read all these classics in high school and then I got into these more popular series. And one of the series I found that I loved was by Marissa Meyer and it's called the Lunar Chronicles series. And basically what Marissa Meyer did was take fairy tales and retell them in a uh, sci-fi setting. So the first book in uh, Cinderella, she's a cyborg. She doesn't just lose her shoe in the ball scene. She loses her whole cyborg leg. Um, it's great. Actually, I think it was just her foot. But anyways, spoilers, she loses her whole foot. So Cinderella's a cyborg. Um, Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf, he is a genetically modified human uh, spliced with wolf DNA, which is awesome. Um, she just wrote a really cool retelling of a, of a whole collection of fairy tales. And she wove the stories together um, in this space-faring civilization where there's a civilization on the moon and there's a civilization on Earth and actually it's not space-faring, it's just the moon and Earth. But anyway, spaceships, all that all that stuff. Um, Rapunzel, she doesn't live in a tower, she lives in a satellite and she's a hacker. It's a great series and I loved it. It was very clean. The story was, was good. It wasn't high classic literature, but just those core of fairy tales were well presented and the, the, tr the true things about those fairy tales translated over well and it was very enjoyable and just in general a good time and so when I finished that series I went on to read another series by Marissa Meyer and this one was about superheroes in a futuristic city again good series it discussed a lot of deep themes. I think the idea that you can only find depth in literature if you're reading classics is silly. There's deep themes in so many places. A lot of what's published at any given time in history is trash and I think the benefit we have from classics is knowing that they stood the test of time for a reason and so when we're reading what's currently published can be harder to weed through what's trash and what's really good because we haven't seen anything stand the test of time yet. We have to practice that discernment ourselves instead of leaning on time to do it for us. But, so I had, after reading like 10 books by Marissa Meyer, established her as one of my favorite favorites currently publishing in the young adult world. And last year she she wrote a book called Instant Karma, which I read, and it was just not as good. But I, I kind of chalked it up to her writing a story for a bit of a younger audience. The characters were in high school, and I, I was like, oh, probably I just didn't like this as much because I'm past that stage of life. So that's what I chalked that up to. But I just read another one by her, and she has really fallen off. The story was supposed to be a retelling of Rumpelstiltskin, which, you know, sounds good to me. 
the story was very chaotic is the first thing I noticed. And then the second thing I noticed was that Marissa Meyer had, for the first time in any of the books that I've read of hers, had inserted current uh, popular leftist gender ideology. She had some gay characters, but more concerningly, she had made this entire pantheon of gods, little g gods, um, kind of a Greek pantheon, but not the Greek gods. She'd made all those gods non-binary. And she has a scene where the main character is teaching little kids and teaching kids that how the gods are non-binary and how because they're gods, they get to be, they get to pick whatever gender they want. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice to not have to be bound to human gender norms. And it was sickening. Now, let me just reiterate, this is an author I've trusted. This is an author I have really enjoyed. I've never had any indication that this author was conservative or a believer, but her books have always been very clean and very tidy. Just good, tidy stories that that came together really well. And so the thing that I noticed with this book is not just that she inserted a couple things that were messy, but the, the entire book was messy. And I think that those two things are connected. When you depart from order, the order of the universe, in one area, I don't think that that stays confined to one little area of your life in the same way that when you commit a horrible crime or any type of sin, really, it doesn't stay cordoned off in a little corner of your mind. A little sin gets everywhere in your life. You don't just kill someone and then remain a good person in the other 99% of your being. No, that poisons your entire being. And that happens with much smaller you know, if you have a pornography addiction, that's not staying in a little corner of your mind. That's poisoning your entire life. Even when you don't see it, alcoholism poisons your entire life. Any, you know, even just a deep selfishness, that stuff poisons your entire life. And I think in the same way, when Marissa Meyer departed from the natural order of the universe to shove this gender and sexual ideology into her work, especially in the context of kids, I think it disconnected her entire storytelling process from any type of truth, any type of foothold. And I think that that was why her story was so chaotic, difficult to follow, and just generally not enjoyable. So awful for Marissa Meyer. I I feel bad for her as a person because on the one hand, I could be mad at her, right, for for doing this. But at the same time, I have seen the pressure the Twitter mob puts, not just Twitter, but I'll I'll say Twitter mob because y'all, most of the people who listen to this podcast are very involved in Twitter and understand how the Twitter mob works. But the, the mob in general have put incredible amounts of pressure on authors to insert these ideologies into their works to the point of, I'm sure you have seen the sheer hate that's laid at JK Rowling's feet for the things that she said about, um, 
trans people and the ways that she stood up for biological women and women in general. And you have heard the silence is violence crowd who basically say it's not enough for you to stay quiet about something. You have to come out on the side of preaching these things or else we hate you. And I think that is the reason Marissa Meyer has felt like she had to insert these things into her work. Now, I bet she believes them. It was written as if she believed them. But at the same time, I think that she would have been, without this mob's influence, comfortable continuing to write the clean, family-friendly stories she had been writing. And I think that it is this pressure of the mob and pressure from publishing companies to shove this ideology down. And I have been seeing it for a long time before anyone started talking about how Disney was shoving ideology down or classrooms were shoving ideology down. Years ago, we were seeing this in young adult publishing, but it used to be easy to spot. It used to be that books that were LGBTQ in in nature were loudly marketed as LGBTQ. And so it was easy to avoid them. But now I could pick up any book by even an author I trust who has been really clean in the past and not know what I'm going to get. And I'm kind of at the point where I've, I'm getting ready to swing in the other direction. I started off with classics. I defended for a long time reading modern works and reading the things that capture the imagination of the current era. And I still agree with that to some extent, but I'm at the point where I don't want to waste my time filling my head um, and giving money to people who hate me. I don't want to pay people like Marissa Meyer to cram down these ideologies to me. It's both my time uh, reading the book and my money buying the book. And I read to think. And so when a book is incredibly divorced from reality, the way that hers was chaotic and not edifying in any way, because a lot of books, they have, they have things I disagree with in them, but they have some really good nuggets of things to think about. They introduce questions, they introduce situations, and you have to think through them. I don't read for pure entertainment. I read to think and to... Um, contemplate human nature and how I would act differently in a situation. It's a whole exercise of the mind, but if if the whole story is really divorced from reality and common sense and all of these things, then it's not worth it's not worth anything. It doesn't it doesn't provide food for thought. It's just difficult to I spend all my effort just trying to make sense of what I'm reading because the genders are all mixed up or whatever it is. So I'm I'm trying to decide what this means for the future of my reading life. Am I going to just read dusty classics for the rest of my life? I like classics, but there's a lot of ways in which they the writing style of past days is a lot slower. Um, There's a lot of good stuff in it, but there's also a lot of wordiness. Things weren't edited in the same way that they are now. It's the industry 
the art form has progressed in a lot of ways. So even while society has departed from truth in a lot of ways from when the classics were written, um, the art form itself, the art of writing, the art of editing, the art of publishing, all of those things have progressed in a lot of ways. So it is a difficult situation. And I think that more and more we as conservatives are going to face this in almost every corner, if not every corner of life, where we used to be able to buy cookies, Oreo cookies, or any cookies without being having an ideology shoved down our throats along with the cookie. And now, in order to even eat that cookie, we have to choke on the ideology too. In order to watch anything from Disney, we have to choke on the ideology. And so, and unfortunately, a lot of the Christian conservative alternatives are just not good. They're not excellent. I think for so long, and I don't really understand why this is. Maybe someone can explain it to me. And this isn't the case in every everything, but it seems like a lot of times when Christians make art, it is so not good. It's like anything that's super preachy isn't particularly good. When you're telling a story, it's not supposed to be a sermon. You're supposed to tell a story, not create a framework with which to shove your opinion down someone's throat. Even if that's a good opinion, even if if the opinion is that you know Jesus died for your sins and, and all of that, it's still not a good story if you created this framework just to, just to preach a sermon. Because then it's a sermon and not a story. And it's failing at both being a sermon and a story. So too often I have seen Christians produce literature and art that's just not good. And even sometimes not morally good. It's, I read a couple Christian romance novel type things. Quote unquote Christian. And they were just not even morally good. They just had to be sneakier about the, the weird stuff. Sneaky about... Here's an example... I didn't even read this book. My sister did, and we've talked about it quite a bit. But it's a novel by Lori Wick, and I don't even remember what the name is. But supposedly this good, clean Christian author. And in the scene, the the main character who's already, you know, falling in love with the love interest, she gets a really terrible sunburn. And so because of this sunburn, she's forced to wear this tube top, which... There's nothing wrong with wearing a tube top. I don't think there's anything wrong with wearing a tube top. But the author thinks there's something wrong with wearing a tube top. But the author has contrived a situation in which the character has to wear something that the author believes is immodest. Because the author doesn't know how to create attraction between the man and the woman without introducing immodesty by her opinion. And so... She's got this scene where the character is dressed immodestly by a situation she contrived so that the male character can be attracted to her. And it's just really weird and twisted, but I see that type of stuff in not just Christian romance novels, but in the romance aspects introduced in other Christian novels. I just read one where the it was um it's a action novel set in set in Israel and the two authors in the dedication page both dedicated the book to to God. It was very, uh, it was a very religious dedication, very 
owe all my work to you, Lord. And then in the very first chapter, the the female lead who happens to be incredibly, incredibly physically attractive, um, a model even, uh, just has to get her skirt ripped all the way up her thigh so that the male lead character can really appreciate her physical beauty. And there's, I don't think that there's anything wrong with a man appreciating the physical attractiveness of a woman, but the juxtaposition of that really self-righteous, um, (laughs) dedication on the first page of this particular book. And then the first chapter being lust filled is just an example to me of how Christian authors, a aren't even as clean as they like to pretend they are because they like to, instead of just being honest that their character is being lustful, which is natural for a human being, they have to contrive these situations in which it's okay, really. But then you sit there and you remember that this Christian author made this scene on purpose. Like the Christian author is the one who ripped this woman's skirt up her thigh. No one else did that but the author. The Christian author is the one who put the the girl in the tube top with the sunburn. She did that. Nobody else. So... I don't, I I wish Christian authors, it seems like, here's maybe what happens. I think a lot of times Christians get into these fishbowls of Christianity where they're so disconnected with the rest of the world in this kind of echo chamber of Christianity that even though they're still sinful human beings, they have all of these layers of pretending they're not of pretending they're perfect. And so they know they want to write this scene where there's physical attraction, but they don't even know how. And in that way, Christians have this connection to truth on the one hand, and this massive disconnect from reality on the other hand. And I think in the same way that Marissa Meyer disconnected from reality and failed because of that disconnect to tell a good story. I see a lot of Christian authors and Christian artists in general disconnecting from reality and as a result failing to tell a good story or write a good song because they're pretending that a lot of things don't exist. A lot of Christian songwriters don't write good music because they pretend that grief doesn't exist on a certain level and that some of those aching emotions that make really good music, anger even, that make really good music when you're honest about the state of the world, when you're honest about the curse, when you're honest about how it feels to live in this world, you can write really good music. But I see a lot of Christian artists just writing this kind of positive, constantly positive, I've heard it called toxic positivity, where positivity itself isn't toxic but when you insist on being positive to the detriment of telling the truth about the world and telling the truth about your own experience then that can be a toxic thing because you're not fixing anything you're just putting band-aids or putting whitewash or veneer or whatever it is over all the messy stuff in the world which is not what God called us to do God called us to fight against sin. He called us to bring his goodness and his healing and and right the world in, in the ways that we can. We're not going to make it perfect, but I think that we're called to bring as much order and truth.
truth and goodness and beauty as we can, especially through art. Art is a great way to to do that. But I think Christians have failed at that almost since the Reformation, I think, is the last time I, re- I can really remember Christian people creating really, really good art. I mean, people like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, you know, there are outliers here and there who have done it. But on the whole, I don't see... You would expect if we as Christians have an actual relationship with the truest and the most good and the most beautiful thing in, in the universe, if we have access to the truth, the good, the beauty, capital letters, you would think that we would be creating the best art that there is. The best things would be the best stories, the best music, but no, we create this really flimsy, lame stuff. And now there are, there are great exceptions. Um, Brandon Sanderson is a adult sci-fi, well, he he does sci-fi and fantasy, primarily fantasy. He's a Mormon, so he's not strictly Christian, but he's, he's pretty close in a lot of ways. And he writes probably the best fantasy um, that exists in this current moment and competes for the best fantasy of all time. And so he's an example of someone who has a close relationship with the truth, not a perfect one, but a close one. And that translates to his work. Um, so there are outliers of people who are believers of some sort who have a pretty decent, produce pretty decent art. And obviously there's, there's a talent involved as well, but it has been a frustration to me for a long time that, that I couldn't just say, okay, well I can, I can read, I can just read Christian authors and, and avoid the, the messiness that exists in secular publishing because then I just don't get to read good literature. And that's really sad. It has just been the case that if I read Christian authors, I can guarantee myself that I won't be reading good literature. That is a horrible referendum on the state of thought and production in Christian circles. I, I, I don't really understand why that is, but it is just the case. And I don't think we bring any honor to God um, by producing crappy literature. <laughs> And leaving the good literature and the good art to be made by people who who don't believe in the truth. Because they are accidentally telling truth better than we're trying to purposely do it. Which is so stupid. (sighs) Anyway, I think I've talked enough about this. Um, This, I understand that this podcast is probably a little bit more appealing to people who are into literature. So if that's not your thing and this one was really boring for you... I apologize. I will not be talking about literature every single time, but this was on my mind because I just finished that book. So in conclusion, pay attention to what your kids are reading because there, there is this gender ideology being pushed into not just the schools, but books for little kids. You cannot just pick up a good looking book off the shelf and think this is going to be okay for your kid. Do what you got to do, whether you need to read it first or whether you need to read it with them and discuss what you see. 
the only problem with reading it with them that I would caution against is that kids get really attached to stories and really invested in stories really quickly. So if there's a chance that you're going to have to shut that book and not finish the story with them, that's that's going to be really hard on them. So just take care. I know that it can be really hard, but my mom, my mom did do this. She read almost everything before we did or um, checked it through some source that she trusted to make sure that the book was going to be good for me to read. And that was back before this ideology was being crammed down. So read with your kids, talk to your kids, pay attention to what they're consuming. Um, you have no one, ultimately, as a parent, you have no one to blame but yourself. Yes, there are forces out here seeking to destroy your children, but Satan has been in this world for a very long time, and he has been trying to destroy children and humans in general for a very long time. And so ultimately, parents, you have no one to hold responsible but yourself for the development of your children. And you don't get to just stop paying attention when they become teenagers. Because just because they're old enough to take care of themselves physically, to a large extent, their minds are still developing. They're still trying to figure out what they believe. And if you are letting voices hammer them with these confusing ideologies before they're fully formed, um, that's on you and nobody else. So, talk to you later. I'll see you on Twitter.